building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. Just before we get into today's episode, we'd like to invite you to subscribe to our weekly devotional group. Just text the two words, Promise Keepers, to 31996. Every week you'll receive a challenging devotional that will inspire you to put your faith into action in the real world. Again, text Promise Keepers to 31996. And now, here's today's show. So when I took over Promise Keepers, not really prepared for what I was getting into, I needed partner. I needed someone that could go with me. And so I want to introduce everybody to Judge Vance Day. And what I had said at the time, I didn't know what I was getting into. It was going to be a major endeavor, but I wanted men with me who walked with limps. That is men like Jacob who've wrestled with God, wrestled with the world and come away stronger and more humble. And so Judge Day, president of Promise Keepers, (laughs) We were in a prayer group together. We'd become close friends over several years. We'd prayed every morning. You had to get up at five in the morning being out in Oregon and me at six in the morning in Colorado. And we prayed together for an hour and a half with a couple other men. And when I needed a partner in crime, uh, literally, it was you. (laughs) You were facing 12 years in prison. And the first year that you helped me turn Promise Keepers around, the entire time you were fighting not going to prison for 12 years, which you talk about walking with a limp. <laughs> well, I can't remember who said it, Ken, but uh, somebody said, yeah, I think Ken needs a Robin for his Batman. <laughs> and that stuck with me the whole time. because I was thinking Barney to my friend, but, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, you and I are good friends. And so, and we're not opposites, but we, we surf well together on the same wave. And that's a really good thing. And I think for men who are listening to this, when they pick brothers that they're going to fight with, meaning for each other, that they really listen to how God is working in the hearts of the other men around them. And to listen to the Holy Spirit, to find those guys that they complement and they can work well with, because it's a team. I mean, Christianity is a team sport. It's not a, it's not heading off into your little island and doing your own thing. It's a team sport. And so, yeah, I was facing 12 years in prison and somebody asked me the other day, you know, what, what is the qualification, the main qualification to be president of Promise Keepers? And I said, I guess it's to be indicted. <laughs> so <laughs> here I am. But yeah, it was a it was an interesting time because you know you you have had been extremely successful in business and God had brought you back into the business finance realm, and I remember talking to you and in and gosh, Vance, I don't know if I want to do this promise keepers thing. I you know going on the board and trying to help a buddy out, and I mean you were so reluctant. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then all of a sudden, the next thing I know, you're chairman of the board because you smarted off and told everybody what you really thought. And, um, and there you were. You, you got it placed, this really what appeared to be a problem, but was really a great opportunity right in your lap. And so, you know, looking back when you said, Vince, I need some help, would you be willing to, you know, consult or ride with me in the first three months to see if this is really going to work? That's one thing that impressed me about you, Ken, is, is that you didn't have some gigantic plan. You looked at it and you said, let's just see what we can do and see if God's in this, because I think God's in it. You know, he'll bring people. And if it is, we'll see evidence. And, and, and just like our father, evidence began to show up. And one of those pieces of evidence, I think, was 
just the, the, the men that surrounded you and I at the very beginning, men who loved Jesus and really wanted to help. Um, and then we could see some guys who just kind of fell away, that it was just too much for them. They didn't accept the invitation to, to get on the back of God's surfboard and to ride the wave. You did. I did. Other men did. That was a wonderful time. I'm, I'm so glad that Promise Keepers was rebooted in that framework. Now, I have to tell you that, that a lot of the time during that first year, I tried not to be distracted. But it was hard because, you know, you're facing up to 12 years in prison for something that never happened. That's a bit of a distraction. A little I mean. bit. But, you know, the, that's the faithfulness of the Lord, though, is that when he, when he you know, like Paul says, that we're going to be anxious. Paul talks about that in Scripture, different places. You know, because I became anxious, he said, until you ministered to me or be anxious for nothing, meaning it's okay to have a little anxiety, but don't let it overwhelm you. But by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request be known to God. We all know that verse. And so I, I really, I think, you know, being indicted and walking through that, that minefield of constantly every moment, depending on the Lord, and not, not dissociating from the, the, the trial, criminal trial that was coming swiftly upon me, but trying to focus on what God was doing. And I really found a different level, I guess, of service in that. I'd never had to be in that dichotomous kind of hold two things at once, one thing that was really super scary and the other thing which could actually bring about revival on this earth. I'd never experienced that before. And so as I'm sitting here with you at this table, I'm wondering why I'm going down this path right now. <laughs> well, you know why? Because I know your personality and you're trying to make people wait as long as possible to know why you were indicted. <laughs> and was, it, was it for streaking across AT&T Stadium uh, in your no, that, skivvies? No, that, that was a long time ago. Oh, okay. bring that up. Yeah. No. Um, you know, I, I, was, uh, I have been an attorney for over 30 years now uh, and 20 years as a litigator just over 20 years. And then I became a circuit court judge in Oregon. And that's an appointed position typically. So I was appointed by the governor. But I was an unusual judge because I was a Republican. I was white. I was in my 50s. You were chairman just, of the Republican Party. Yeah. I, I had a lot of political. So why power. would he have appointed you? I have two answers to that. God's grace, clearly. I was pushed forward by some friends of mine who really believed that I was the right choice for that position. And then number two, you know, in politics, there's always some type of trading. So I don't know what went on behind the scenes. The governor got something for appointing me. That's just probably the way it worked. Now, did you know him? I Yes, because it was my job to stick him in the eye with a sharp stick, and I was very good at it. As a former newscaster, as a former, you know, public person who was in politics for a long time, I was good at uncovering things or talking about things that made the governor uncomfortable. And then he makes you a judge. And he made me a judge. And then he indicted you and tried to throw you in prison. <laughs> now that, what happened right after he, he appointed me is he got into an ethical, um, as my grandma would say, he got his teat in the ringer. He got in really big trouble and he had to resign because his girlfriend had done some unethical things. This is John Kitzhaber. So the secretary of state who knew me well Kate Brown. Who is a homosexual. Yeah, she's a lesbian and bisexual and so on and so forth. And I got along well with her. I did projects with her. She became governor. And two years, three years into my term as a, as a circuit court judge, I made a decision to re, re, recuse myself from same-sex marriage. 
And so when I did that, I knew that that target on my back was going to be bigger if that became known. So I just told my staff quietly, don't tell anybody. This is none of their business. It's not a judicial function. I don't have to marry people. So I recused myself because the law had changed and I wasn't going to put myself up there. No, this is before the Supreme Court had done it. it, This was when a federal judge had mandated Oregon's constitution didn't matter because his opinion mattered more than the Oregon constitution. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. And so then you said when that became law, very quietly, you didn't make a big stand. You didn't wave a flag. Nope. You didn't just get said, out this, nope, didn't do any of that. If this should come up, I'm out. Just send that couple down the hall to my friend who's very willing to marry them. And, and, that, and I thought it was done. And then? And then uh, there was a separate incident relating to my veterans court, and I won't get into the details of it, although it does help people understand why I got indicted. I had put on my Good Samaritan hat as a judge to help a Navy SEAL who was in desperate situation. And my team of prosecutors and defense attorneys had asked me to go and help this person. I did. My son came along and my son was- Now, let me, let me, let me just set this up a little bit for people. So <laughs> you set up the Veterans Court. Right. You said, I'm a judge and I want to make a separate court for veterans so that I can help them through my Christian faith. Exactly. And you were outspoken in your courtroom- very outspoken. Mm-hmm. Talked about God because God has a plan for everybody. And you wanted to see vets who were in desperate need, so desperate that they were now in a court, and so that you could help them. We so- lose 22 veterans a day to suicide. And, and that's a shocking statistic. And so my job was to put together a team of psychologists and counselors and you know, a whole bunch of folks who were excellent in what they did, people from the VA administration, so on and so forth. We had 60 guys and women in our court, and we would take them, instead of sending them to prison, we'd work them through an 18 to 24-month program where they got healed. So it's kind of unbelievable for me. I mean, there was nothing for vets until you showed up. Correct. That's unbelievable. I mean, we'd been at war since 2000. One, mm-hmm. all the way until you do this in 14 or 15. Yeah, there was one court out of the, the 27 different districts in Oregon. It was way down south, a very small court. Good court, veterans court, but ours was the first court in Oregon to really take it big. I mean, the DA and the, the county administrator gave my team and me a, a leadership award for you know starting this. We started, you know, the paper was behind us, the crowd was behind us. And the fact us. that the DA gave you a leadership award is going to come back to the story mm-hmm. in a poignant way. Yeah. Okay, so now you find out that this Navy SEAL is in serious need. You, so you convict him of a crime, and then you find out he's got a serious need, and you go help Right, him. it was in the early January, 10 degrees at night, his wood stove or pellet stove had failed. And so my team, in discussing that, said, what are we going to do? The guy's sleeping with his dogs. It's 10 degrees at night. Jeez. It's terrible. He lives out in the middle of nowhere you know, a, a bare, little, you know, bare light bulb in his home. It was a hovel. Mm. And so my son went out there on a Sunday. He was going to bring him food. I got permission from my team to go with my son to see if I, because I can fix most things. I'm kind of one of those fix-it guys. And so while I was uh, assessing the pellet stove to see it can be repaired, my son went out to his car, got a box, brought it in, and it was a, a new forty-five caliber H&K. A beautiful oh, it's gun. a nice gun. Yeah. I didn't even know he had it. I'd heard he bought it, but I hadn't even seen it. Well, he wanted to show it to his Navy SEAL friend. Of course. Ah. So the Navy SEAL. And your son was how old? uh, 23 at the time. An adult, you know, loves guns. I carry a gun most of the time. You know, I've sentenced people to death. So when you do that, you generally carry a gun because you want to be prepared. 
And so all I heard as I was working on that stove was, well, when you, you come around the corner and you take the barrel of the gun, you snap the, the rag head in the face. And when he bounces back, then you shoot him. And I thought, well, this was not your son speaking. Yeah, so. I was the Navy SEAL. And I thought, <laughs> what are they talking about? And so I turned. And no, I no. Looked. What was the SEAL had? What had you convicted him of? What was the crime? Well, he had had three DUIIs. So okay. when I convicted him, it was just a misdemeanor DUI. But when Drink, you drunk had, driving. Right. Okay. Thanks. And so, hey, I'm talking to a cop, of course. You know, you know what that means. Um, we called them deuces, so <laughs> I don't know why, but that, they were called deuces. Well, and three deuces is a felony. Okay. So technically, he was charged with a misdemeanor, but the additive of two others in different states, I sentenced him under a felony. I see. So you knew it was a felony when you sentenced when him? When I sentenced him, okay. clearly, yeah. And I'm a civil attorney. That's my background as a trial attorney. I never was a criminal attorney. But that doesn't matter. That's not an excuse. In that moment, when I saw him holding the empty pistol, it never occurred to me, oh, he's a felon. Put down the gun. Right. You know, I didn't say anything. I didn't even think about it. I just turned back to the stove. Especially and since he's a guy that you just, you just sentenced for drunk driving. You don't think felon. Absolutely not. And, and he, I certainly he's a Navy SEAL. He knows what to do with a gun. Right. It's not like he's, you know, a car burglar or something. Exactly. And I don't look at people and I don't, you know, I don't write their, their crime on their forehead and I don't look at people as criminals mm -hmm. in only under certain situations. And so anyway, long story short, there's a nothing incident. And a couple of weeks later, somebody in my staff came to me and said, well, the Navy SEALs, he was concerned about holding a gun in your presence. And I said, well, why? Well, because he's a felon judge. And I went, oh, should have had a V8. I mean, mm -hmm. duh. So I talked to the team, talked to the prosecutor, defense attorney, all the people on my team, and they, they laughed at me and said, look, it's not a big deal. I mean, it was the gun loaded. I said, I don't think so, no. I mean, I talked to my son. It wasn't loaded. Anyway. And he was holding it for 20 seconds or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. At most, 30 seconds. I mean, yeah. literally, he's out of the box, shows it, puts it down, end of story, goes back in the truck. Okay. So I didn't think it was a big deal. Nobody else did. About three months later, my presiding judge, who didn't like me because I was pro-life, I'm a Christian, I'm outspoken, she's an atheist, very pro-choice, called me names, I won't say I'm on the air. She came to me and said, I heard about this gun incident, and um, I think you ought to report yourself to the Judicial Ethics Commission. And I said, why? I, nothing happened. Well, I just think it could be an ethics violation. Now, what's a presiding judge? Presiding judge, you have a independently elected or appointed judges. We're responsible for our own workload, but we pick one judge out of the 10 of us, let's say, to be the presiding judge. And that person handles the administrative duties and has a halftime caseload. Okay. So they really don't have much power over me. She can't do anything to me, but she does administrate certain things. And so out of respect, I said, look, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and do that. If you think that I did that, I knew she'd report me if I didn't. So you've already talked to the DA, everybody, they're all like, well, this is a joke. I mean, you went to fix this guy's pellet stove. Your son showed him an empty gun. He waved it around and said macho things. The, everybody went away. That's the end of it. That's the end of it. Silly. Now she's saying, well, why don't you self-report because you... I'm not sure what Somehow, you did wrong exactly. You were busy fixing a, fixing a stove, but okay. Yeah. I said, okay, well, because the law, it requires a judge to report, even themselves, if they feel like they, there's some ethical question. 
Okay. So the, the standard's really high. Even the appearance of something unethical needs to be reported. Okay. So I, I did my duty. I reported, wrote my letter, sent it to them. When they came down to investigate that gun incident, it got whispered in their ear by the presiding judge that I didn't marry gay people. Uh, and that was the big, I mean, that, now they had a target. Because, you know, they were looking, this is now 2015, gay rights, and now all of a sudden, you know, the, the U.S. Supreme Court decides that it, it, it should be allowed. And so all of a sudden, they were looking for a target to punish so they could tell other judges, don't act like this guy, because hmm. he's a bigot. He's a homophobe. And people who know me know that, that I love people because they're, they're made in the image of God. Well, I knew you oh, at that point, mm -hmm. and uh, I can absolutely attest to that. Well, and it was one of those times where you, and I think it may people need to recognize that that you know, I believe we're in a um, postmodern but actually pre-Christian culture, and what I mean by that is is that postmodern in the sense that there all truth is relative, that that there is no truth, that that you. That meaning is only brought about by your sense of personal safety and identity and worth and all that narcissistic stuff. Mm. And pre-Christian in the sense that we haven't really been in a Christian era of our culture for probably 50 to 80 years. I mean, foundationally. It, it disappeared you know, in the later part of the century and with Thomas Dewey and, and Darwinism and all those things. It got stripped out of us. And, you know, the the... All those things that the Supreme Court did has removed the foundational elements. I actually think we're pre-Christian in the sense that the greatest revival that we're going to see is yet to come. So I think we have great opportunity, but I also think that Christians need to recognize that they will be attacked. Jesus promised it. They will be persecuted. We will be persecuted for our faith. And if we're not ready for that, and we don't utilize those inalienable rights that are not given by government, but given by God— to voice, give ourselves voice. You know, Paul, you look at it, when he, when he got accused by the Jews and was taken in by the uh, tribune and then whipped, he had the right, before he got scourged, to tell that tribune, oh, by the way, tribune, <laughs> I'm a Roman citizen. If you scourge me without a trial, it's death for you. He didn't do that. He waited till he was scourged. Think about that. I think it's because he wanted to be with his brother who was getting scourged. Yeah. And I think in his spirit, he knew that if he allowed an injustice against him, that then he could use his natural rights as a Roman citizen to plead before Caesar. And that's what he did. Mm -hmm. I want my trial before Caesar. And he went all the way to Rome. And look at what happened. The Roman church was you know, burst and God did amazing things because Paul stood on his natural rights as a Roman citizen. So I would challenge, you know, believers to, to think about two things. One, you're going to be persecuted. If they can do that to a, to a, a powerful, all by, you know, circuit court judge in Oregon mm -hmm. and, and do it so publicly and think they can get away with it, they lost eventually, in my opinion. But the point is, is they will do it to anybody and they're doing it right now. So let's fast forward a little bit so that people can see how they're doing it right now. So they come to you and they basically said, we're going to use this to get you. And so therefore, just quit and it all goes away. Yep. That's what they said. And my, 
you know, I, my wife and I had already talked about it. We were not going to surrender our liberty of conscience. That's my First Amendment right. It's given by God. And, and so many times when a problem comes to us, I think as believers, we look for an exit. Now, I, I got to be honest with you. I looked for exits because I, I thought this was unfair. I'm going to have to hire lawyers. I don't like lawyers, and I am a lawyer. And I just felt like, Lord, what the heck? You've given me this position, and, and now I'm going to be driven out? How does that work, Father? You know, that I was in consternation. Long story short, we fought. It was a four and a half year battle, cost the Lord and my family over a million dollars in just legal fees. You know, we had to sell our home, we had to sell our assets, and we we were able to purchase a fifth wheel, and we lived in that for two years just to make it through this. Okay, so let me stop you there. Your wife is the preeminent uh, trauma psychotherapist in the state of Oregon. I right. think so. Yeah, she's amazing. I mean, they, the top people recommend people who've been through, through serious trauma to your wife. So your wife, prominent psychotherapist, you a sitting judge, you're living in a trailer. Yep. Because everything you own, the house, I was in that house, an old classic house on 13 acres, I think, mm-hmm. that you had added on to with your boys, built. Mm-hmm. Kids grew up wrote, there. Raised your kids. Gone. And in fact, when the house was a pending sale, the, the buyer's kids wouldn't come in because they didn't want to see you. They'd read all this bad press about you. Yeah, that yeah, was disturbing. <laughs> and amidst all that, now you're living in a trailer. And and you call me up. <laughs> How would you like to run Promise Keepers? Yeah, hey, this got kind of dumped in my lap by this guy named Jesus. <laughs> I need some help. Would you come work with me? And, uh, you know... One, I, I loved you as a brother, so I, I knew who you were, and I knew that you were solid, that you weren't trying to pass off something. It wasn't like you, you know, oh, God, I got this shiny object, but I'd give it to my friend to play with. No, no, you were committed. And and I'd just gone through watching some of my friends who were part of my band of brothers start to step back because now I was indicted, and I and I felt those close friends begin to... You know, you can you just know their thoughts. Hmm. If Vance blows up, I might get blood on me, and or I might get. If the fit hits the shan, then it might get on me, and I don't want to be anywhere near him. Talk about the DA who gave you an award for your awesome leadership as a judge, right? Bef- right before all this started happening, how did he stand up for you? Well, the interesting thing was, Ken, is that I had really good friends in the Department of Justice who are still unnamed, and I'll never name. No, they, tell me who they are. I'll name them. <laughs> no, they are good friends. And what they would do is, is they would, they would hear stuff that the attorney general was saying about me. She's a rabid liberal. She's still in that office, Ellen Rosenblum, former judge, circuit court, and court of appeals, and then ran for attorney general. She wants to be governor. She's got a political axe to grind. She hates Trump, and she hated me. And so they would tell my lawyers quietly, hey. They're investigating Judge Day for anything they can get on him. They're going to look at his taxes. They audited my taxes. They're going to look at any ethical things. They tried to take away my license. None of they couldn't find anything. All they could find is that little incident where the Navy SEAL held the gun. And so we knew there was an investigation going on. And so we got prepared. I lawyered up. I got one of the best lawyers I could. And we just went right to the Department of Justice and said, you're looking for something. Well, let's have a conversation about this. And I think they got kind of, uh-oh, he knows. 
Well, what I also saw was is that they went to the local DA. People got to understand how powerful a local DA is. I mean, immensely powerful. They want to they drag you through a trial. They can do it immediately. And so the local DA, who knew me well, who knew my character. Who had given you awards who'd for Who had given me awards. We'd worked on committees together. I don't know the level of his faith. He professed some faith more in the Roman church than perhaps because his wife was Catholic. I don't know. I never really had those deeper conversations. He had an opportunity to stand up and be counted and say, excuse me, Department of Justice, this is my jurisdiction. You don't have any authority to charge Judge Day with a crime. I'm the one who does. Number one, he could have done that. He didn't. Instead, he punted. He literally went to them, because I saw the documents, and said, essentially, look, I don't need to be a part of this. You guys investigate him. I'll give you my authority. And so he literally gave them the right to come persecute me and right. prosecute so let's, me. So let's, let's reset this for a minute. You're a sitting judge in Oregon. You set up a veterans court. You get awards for this veterans court because you're actually caring for our vats who are doing things like getting three DUIs because, or whatever you guys in Oregon call them, <laughs> three deuces, so that you can care for them. You go on your own time to help this guy's pellet stove. Your son shows him a gun. He he's got holds the gun for 20 or 30 seconds. That's what we're talking about here. Yep. They don't like you. And so now... And by that time, they'd failed in really trying to get me off the court. I'd been suspended, and my case was pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. And this so, same case we're this, talking about. This this gay marriage ethical... Because, I, you know, it, it was a four-year battle, and this is near the... You know, right in the middle of it. And they, I think they could see that they weren't, they weren't getting me off the bench. So they go ahead, and literally, the last day before the statute of limitations ran on one of those felonies... That's when I got indicted. They waited three years. Now, why would they do that? Because it was a political prosecution, and they wanted to see what happened. Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized, innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan, utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. And now, back to today's show. So fast forward to the very end. You know, so here we are. You're a year into to helping me with Promise Keepers. And, and I was kind of hoping you get convicted. So <laughs> I, I would only have to pay you in cigarettes. It would have been nice and cheap because, you know, you could have still done the job from jail. So they're, they're, they pick the jury. And, you know, me as an ex-cop, 
you know, I'm thinking, okay, there's no way they're going after you for a crime unless they have a witness. And the only witness they have, they have you, they have your son, and they have this Navy SEAL. How, how, how are they getting him to testify? How is he going to show up to crucify you? Because they're going to need him to make this all come together. Well, the interesting thing was, skipping to the end of the story, I, their case crumbled. And the day after their case crumbled, I got a call from the Navy SEAL. Called me on my cell phone. And he, and he said, Judge Day, and he said his name. And I said, um, it was great to hear from you. Thank you for calling. I, you know, because I don't bear anything against him. This guy, this guy served our nation in 12 to 13 deployments. He was highly trained. He was a breacher on SEAL Team 6. The breacher is the guy. Wow. Yeah. Wow. The guy, that's the guy who stands next to the door, packs it with C4 he's and blows the, he, it open. He's the baddest dude. He's the baddest dude on their team. And you think about the concussive nature of his experiences, blowing doors open and things. I mean, the guy's going to have some trauma, brain trauma, and he did. But he knew, and he told me this straight up, Judge Day, I knew that they were going to come after me and take away, I mean, put me back in jail if I didn't agree to testify. I'm sorry I did this to you. I just was trying to preserve myself, but I would never testify against you. They didn't subpoena me, so I was never going to show up. Literally, that was his plan from the beginning, even though he even said to me, I thought they were going to give me a Corvette if I just showed up because they were just promising me everything just to get you. This was all about getting you. So ironically, he's the felon holding the firearm, but they don't care about him. No, they, they didn't. They just care about their political enemy. My, my lawyers told me, Ken, that, that I'm the first person in United States history that they could see because they did the research to find any case that was like mine, where a person is indicted for aiding and abetting a felon in possession of a firearm for being in the corner of a room 20 feet away. Wow. I mean, they, they didn't go after the, the felon. They didn't go after my son. They went after me. And so really their only witness was this Navy SEAL. And when he, they didn't subpoena him. I mean, really? You're, you're a prosecutor for the Department of Justice in Oregon and you don't subpoena your own witness? So do you think they knew it was no case from the beginning? I'm pretty sure of it. And why would they do that? Because they, they want to make sure that this game that's being played in politics is all about power and control. If they don't have power, they will take it. If you have power, they will try to control you by finding something on you or getting you out of the office. So the point was, because uh, I was baffled, and I think most of the people listening to this will hear this and be baffled. I mean, here I, ex-cop, you know, been through the legal process a million times. Literally, they could file a case against you, drain you of every penny you have, and then go, eh. I guess, I guess we'll just go away now. Right. And there's and no recourse you have. There's no recourse unless you can find actual evidence of, of intent. Which is impossible. Really hard to do. It's like I trying mean, to sue someone for fraud. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, and people cover themselves really, really easy. But look at what's happening today. I mean, the McCluskeys in St. Louis, they have a Second Amendment natural right to defend their property. You know, the castle doctrine. That's not somebody's name. That's your castle. You get to defend your castle, your home, your property. And most states recognize some form of the castle doctrine. So now you're talking about the two people who sit out front, uh, the husband with a rifle, the wife with a fake pistol. Yep. And the protesters are coming by after having broken through. Private property. 
at so we're on private property. They're just standing there, and so the DA files on them. Yep. But the difference between them and you was that the Attorney General of Missouri wasn't on a political witch hunt, and he was able to say, nah. Yeah, he's going to intervene because he knows what's right. But you had an Attorney General in Oregon that was on the same team as the corrupt everybody else. Yep. Because there was no political parity in Oregon. You had one party controlling everything, and so they were all able to go after you and take every penny you had. Exactly. And then go, eh, okay. And that was the, I think the real, I mean, the point was, is if we can't get Judge Day to resign, then we're going to go after him with the prosecution. And when they came to me and said, you know, like a month before the trial, well, Judge Day, let's have a mediation. So we set up a mediation, got another judge to help us talk about this. My my stand was very clear, drop all charges. If, if you want to, if you want to settle this thing, you drop all charges. And their, their retort was, is, well, we can't do that. Well, why? Well, because we've taken a political stand of public. I mean, it was so, it wasn't even transparent any longer. We're going to be embarrassed. How did the church stand with you during all this? I think the church, for the most part during that season, and maybe even in today's season, just covered its head under its pillow kind of thing, you know, crawled into bed, covered itself with its blankets and said, it'll go away. This is a bad dream. We don't, we, we don't want to put our 501c3 nonprofit status in jeopardy, but the government could come take our status. I mean, if we stand up, this this is a political matter. Oh my gosh, if we stand for gay marriage or against gay marriage or whatever, or help Judge Day, we could get in trouble. Don't you understand? I, I think that's what Jesus said, though, wasn't it? Make sure that you don't make anybody angry or take any stands because it might be uncomfortable for that's you. Right. Isn't that, it was yeah, not that, the gospel? That's the, yeah, yeah. Gospel of idiot. So I remember, I remember calling several pastors during that time that you were going through this in Oregon and them going, oh, yeah, I heard something about oh, He's a guy in the newspaper that took a stand. Yeah, that's interesting. You, so you, sorry for him. Glad it's not happening yeah. to me. Sucks to be him. Yeah. I don't, don't want to be him. Now, there, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, there were some churches who fought valiantly. I mean, invited me to their congregations. They would speak loudly about it. Different legislators tried to you know, put bills in to say, this is wrong. we got to change the law. How can you do this to a judge? But en masse, it was a reticence to engage whatsoever. And that that's sad. Hmm. I mean, even with the Baker case, you know, um, Phillips here in, in Colorado, I mean, there were a lot of churches. So just, you're talking about the Baker who wouldn't cook, bake the cake for the lesbian couple. Correct. Yeah. And then it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And then, of course, came back because Colorado was so clearly biased, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you look at that situation with Jack Phillips and Masterpiece Cakes, where he stood upon his natural right, liberty of conscience. That's the First Amendment right. It doesn't come from government. But Colorado said, no, 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 no. That hate speech. You can't do that. That's being bigoted. And so they really took him to the ringer. Unfortunately, the United States Supreme Court didn't make the decision on the marriage. They sent it back on a technical issue and said, if you're going to do that to somebody, you got to do it right. <laughs> it's like, really? And same with my case. You know, they, they, people don't realize that the, the United States Supreme Court gets about 5,000 writs of certiorari. That's a permission slip to come argue before them every year. They only take like 100 cases out of 5,000. And so the chance of getting to the United States Supreme Court is really, really low. And people need to understand that local judges, local prosecutors, local school boards, that's where the battle is. Mm. And if we don't step into that battle, 
and elect people who have courage, who have faith, who have an understanding of how the local process works and are willing to defend their position, we lose every single time because that's where the record's made. We've been talking about how Judge Day is the face of modern-day persecution, that literally an entire institution went after him to persecute him for standing up for his faith and to make an example to everybody else of, you better not take a stand or we'll get you too. And we saw a, a small minority of churches stand with you, a couple of talk show hosts stood with you, but mostly the church ran and hid. And so here we are, promise keepers now. And now we're transitioning this, this conversation around the fact that we as Christians, we, we fight for the House of Representatives and the Senate and the President of the United States. But man, as Oz Guinness talks about, we have abandoned the very foundation of democracy and that the godless have taken over our school boards, mm-hmm. our right. county commissions, our, our city councils. And so while we celebrate, oh, goody, we won the Senate, we don't realize that they're teaching sodomy to seven-year-olds here in Colorado mm-hmm. because the school boards are controlling who's running. And they have now discovered that their biggest way to go after Christians is with local DAs. And we've seen George Soros throwing millions of dollars into getting DAs elected all over the country, DAs that will literally go after the innocent, go after Christians, and will not go after the people of doing crime. And so we see this now in action right now as we see people bashing in windows. I mean, there yes, there are protesters who are, who are peacefully protesting, but we see rioters coming in, destroying buildings, and DA's doing nothing about it. Yep. And, and the evidence turning is right around. there. It's all on video. Right. Then they're turning around and arresting gym owners for opening up their gym or people are standing out in front of their property while people are trespassing, holding guns to ensure they don't break into their homes. So or denying we see churches from holding a small amount of people in their sanctuary who are going to be separated by six feet and wear masks. And yet outside, there's thousands of people who are, you know, rioting with no masks on. It's it, it, rampant it, hypocrisy. Totally. And now we're saying it's time for the church to stand up. Because if we don't stand up now, and thank God for John MacArthur taking a stand last week and saying, we're doing church, come get us. We need, hey, if if all 60 million evangelical Christians in this country said, my rights, my life belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you don't get to take them away, that's it. They're all done. Mm-hmm. But cowering, 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 and we see what happened to you. And I'm telling everybody out there listening, it's coming to a theater near you if we don't start to stand up. Mm-hmm. Because they were able to do that in a completely godless state like Oregon. It's probably the most godless state in America because it's been run by abject atheists for 40 years. But it's coming to other places too if because they're looking at us right now through this pandemic and going, man, those Christians won't do anything. No. They're no, in fact, they just around. crawl in a little hole and just let us roll right over the top of them. No, they know that if, if you know, it's like somebody who's never exercised for 20 years, and then you ask them to run a race, <laughs> it ain't happening. And the church hasn't exercised itself in the public domain. The ecclesia, the public area, we're called to be in the midst of that. And we, we've, we've stepped out of it because we're more interested in having a safe place called a building where we can do our own little self-congratulatory circle thing. And that's, that's not what God calls us to do. He called us to be involved. I mean, it's a basic responsibility of stewardship of any believer, any member of a republic, frankly, to vote. 
So Christians, one, need to vote because not a lot of them are, as many as can. But that responsibility is not discharged just by voting. It's discharged by studying who these people are. So voting intelligently. Correct, because we will be And how do you find out? I mean, you, you go to, look, you, every time we open the ballot, you've got three people I've heard of. It's president, senator, my local congressman. And then there's all these judges. And then there's a DA and there's a county commission. How do, how do we find out, well, who are these people? Mm-hmm. There's nothing that lets us know who they are. Well, as a, as a former high school teacher and a college professor, if a student showed up for the final exam and said, hey, you know, coach or, or prof, what am I supposed to study? I'd be saying, yeah, you're a little late because you don't take the final exam without studying. You study. So part of that voting is getting ready two months ahead. You can't start to study three weeks ahead. It's really got to be several months. I know that sounds for people who are listening like, oh, I don't have time to do that. Oh, yeah, you do. Because your destiny, what happens to you and your family, depends on it. So you take a picture of the yard sign and you Google the name. Yeah. And you go, not that guy. Yeah, it's very simple. <laughs> you educate yourself. You start to look at who these people are. I mean, Google will provide you a lot of stuff. You go on their Facebook page. You'll find out who's conservative or liberal. You, you look at their Twitter feed. You call the local interest group that might be interested in that position. So you check out their Facebook page. Exactly. Right? All right. So what about those people who have a little bit more time on their hands or a little bit more ability? How do they get involved running for the school board, city office? I mean, it, it seems to most Americans like something that's completely unattainable. That's for those people over there. It's actually shockingly easy mm-hmm. to run for all these local boards. It is. It's really... You were the chairman of the Republican Party of Oregon. I mean, if somebody wants to get involved in local politics, what do they do? Well, one, we always told them to volunteer. Find an area where you have a passion. If you like the water board, which I don't, <laughs> or the library, if you really If you like two water board or like the water board? <laughs> the water board. Oh, okay. No, no. Yeah. But, you know, there, there's a lot of commissions that, that positions go unfilled. Find some place where you can volunteer, get on um, the ballot on a simple, easy, you know, panel, a board, and, and just try it. Get a couple of your friends to do it with you. So you recruit your friends who are like-minded. Don't, don't be a dummy. Don't, don't push. I mean, do it intelligently. Don't tell people. Jesus was very strategic. When he, had, when he knew that the, the, the culture around him was expecting him to get on a horse with a, you know, a charger and a sword and go after the Romans? Did he play into their hands? Absolutely not. He told Jairus, don't tell anybody that I've healed your daughter. Go, go sh-, Because he didn't want to be pegged, I believe, into that Roman killing role, which was not his role. Mm. And too many Christians immediately stand up and say, I'm a Christian and I'm going to change everything. No, shut your mouth. Get your buddies together. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Exactly. Sometimes is the time to talk and sometimes it's the time to listen. And when you're the new guy, you should be listening, not exactly. talking. Don't, don't put the bullets into your enemy's pistol. Mm-hmm. Why do that? Don't give him ammo. But you, you, you go ahead and you get your buddies together, your, your ladies, and you volunteer on that board. You become a member and you work your way up, get known in your community. You should be involved in your community. And if you can't do it, then you recruit other people to run for those positions. 
And then God will give you a calling and he'll get you up into those other positions if you're doing the right thing. Okay, so there's a couple things here that you're just saying. First of all, I was talking to a political operative who said, you know, there's 60 million evangelical Christian adults, voting age adults in this country. Of those, 40 million are, are registered to vote and of those half vote. So out of 60 million evangelical Christians, 20 million vote. The other 40 million complain. Mm-hmm. Right. So the first thing is you can vote. The second thing is you can be an educated voter. Know who's on your local boards. Know who's running for the school board. The third thing is you can be the guy who, who's or gal who's running for those boards. Exactly. Get involved in your school board. What what are what are they teaching our kids? Hmm. I don't like that. Maybe if I was on a school board, I could vote in different curriculum. But the the last thing, Judge, is what about people who see what's going went on, went on with you what should people have done so if if we were if this was 3 years ago and they read in the they open up the paper and they go oh this judge is getting raked over the coals because we're going to see it happening more and more and more mm-hmm. what should they do what what should they have done to help you i think for the average person who has a busy life engaging in some type of protest is a really foreign thing but it's very very effective and so I think, and, and, and if the church had been more involved, one, they should have you know, gotten together the local church and said, we're going to hear from Judge Day at this public event. Come, listen to what's happening. Number two, then they go down and they talk to the people who were in charge of this, the DA, others. They email them. They start picketing. They start doing some, what is our uh, right of assembly under the mm-hmm. First Amendment and say, no. Now, there were people who did that. They did it naturally walked around the Supreme Court building with signs and did things like that. There was. Okay, oh, yeah, good. and it got attention. The problem was is that, like you just counted 60 million, only 20 are voting, 20 million are voting. There are people who are standing on the sidelines who say, oh, it really doesn't affect me. Don't believe that lie. It will affect you. And you must stand up for the Jack Phillips of, you know, Master you know, peace cakes, and you got to stand up for the McCluskeys, and you got to stand up for the gym owners, even though they may not be people of faith. If they take their First Amendment right away to, or their Second Amendment, whatever their constitutional rights are, they will come after you. This is not about rights to those who want to take them. It's about power and control. And the side that wants to take those rights away from us for them, it's all about gaining power so they can control us. So and they'll do it. It wasn't really about you. No. I was just fodder for their political agenda. And their political agenda was, we want to show conservatives who are people of faith that they will not ever, if they go in the public square, if they step out of our churches, their churches, we will slaughter them. So this brings a little conversation that was going on about a year ago that you have freedom to practice your religion the way you see fit in your own little building, but don't you dare take it out into the marketplace. Exactly. I'm sure that's what the founding fathers died for uh, in freedom was mm-hmm. so that they could all hide in buildings somewhere from the British. Right? But isn't it sad that that's what's happened with the North American church for the most part, that we've, we've, we've retreated into our buildings and, and, and we think we're safe there. And God's not going to let that happen. He's not going to allow us to remain safe. You know, and I want to make something clear to everybody who's listening right now, too. Do you know that 85% of the money that goes to missions worldwide comes from America? 85% comes from 4% of the population which lives in America. If Satan can take out America, he basically takes out 
all of global missions and support for global missions. This is a big battle that we're in to maintain the religious freedom in America. And boy, have we given up a lot of ground lately. Promise Keepers, part of what we're going to do is take it back. And that is to encourage men to fight. That is encourage men and women to get involved. And we have some friends who, who don't want their names mentioned, who have organizations that they're leading, and they're recruiting pastors and people who want to get involved to run for local office, get their wives to run for, for local office, just to start getting involved in your community. And I would just say one of Satan's biggest lies, besides reminding us of everything we ever did wrong and telling us we're disqualified, is that, well, it doesn't really matter, and you don't really matter, and you really can't do that. Who do you think you are? And if we, all of us, just started getting involved in local, we say politics, and that's not what we mean, leadership, mm -hmm. local leadership. Mm -hmm. What Governor. are we teaching our kids? Who is controlling this, that, and the other thing? Start to inform ourselves, and we don't have to worry about the Congress. We need to start worrying about our county, what's happening here, what's happening in our schools, what are they teaching our kids? It, we would take this country back so fast. There's so many more of us than of them, but boy, they are dedicated to their religion of atheism. Totally dedicated. So much more than we're dedicated to the Jesus Christ who was tortured to death for our sins. Mm -hmm. Because we have a comfortable Christianity that doesn't cost us much. And when it doesn't cost us anything, then they're not willing to spend anything to defend it. And so it's going to, you know, God in his great wisdom, what he allows to come against us or come through his hands, he could easily stop with this sovereign power. He chooses not to in many situations. I mean, look at the disciples. I mean, most every one of them died a difficult death, and he allowed that. Do you think he's going to spare us here in America just because we're American? Absolutely not. Who is it who said that the goal of life for many people is to arrive at death as safely as possible? Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to, I want to go out with a bullet in the head, you know, mattering. <laughs> well, Bill Hickok, he went out the right way. Well, we're going to have that opportunity and I don't mean to scare people. I don't, you know, but, but Jesus was the one who reminded us, you will be persecuted for my sake. Take it as an honor. Yeah. Those four years for my family and I were very, very difficult, but there was a transition point in the midst of it where I realized that James one verse two applies to me that I should consider it all joy when when we're tested, when we encounter various trials for the, you know, testing of our faith. And and we really shifted as a family to saying, you know, not bring it on in a in a pugilistic and angry type of way, but Father, use this for your glory. I mean, think about it, Ken. I, I look pretty good in a black dress. I mean, really, as a judge. Um, that was a joke. There's something that makes you look good because I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> But but I never would have left the bench had it not been for that turmoil. And my jurisdiction as a person of influence went from the state of Oregon by, by God's grace and your asking me to join you in this battle to now internationally. Mm -hmm. I, I never could have anticipated that. So, you know, for the listeners, when God allows a problem into your life, don't look at it through your human eyes. Ask your father, what is it for? Because he's always got a bigger adventure than we can ever anticipate. And sometimes we cause our own problems. I mean, I'm not lily white in the whole, I mean, I did some dumb things. Maybe I shouldn't have gone to that Navy SEAL's house. But God used that. He knew I was going to care for that guy. So don't mistake the opportunities. They're all around us. 
And and when God presents an opportunity to take a stand, take it. We don't, and that's the problem. You know, strength and growth only come through pain. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, as as human beings, we we swallow this lie that we want to seek our comfort at all costs, realizing that comfort leads to weakness. Right? I mean, you look at people when they retire. I, I'd read a study once about there's like a hundred civilizations, kind of micro civilizations that. People lived a vastly longer average lifespan, and elderly people were far more productive than other civilizations. And they did a study, and they couldn't figure out why. What was it that tied these? They were all different ethnicities and locations. Was it the food? Was it this? No. In all of their languages, there was no word for retire. Mm -hmm. So nobody ever stopped being a productive member of society. And I have seen people, I'm sure you have too, where, you know, these are bold, productive, wise people and they retire and they buy the dress socks that go up to their knees to wear with their sandals and they play golf every day. And it doesn't take long before the most important thing in their world is what's going to be at the Golden Cow Buffet tonight. And they become just complacent and not very productive. And there's nothing, there's nowhere in the Bible that we're called to retire. We can, we can retire from a, a job and move on to something else, mm-hmm. but we are Transition never to, to stop, something else. Never to stop working. Well, and it's a modern conception in Western culture. I mean, think look at the 1930s with Social Security, the term retirement and being secure socially. That has led to so, so many expectations that are unfulfilling for the natural, you know, way we were made. Our DNA says that we should be taking dominion till we drop. That's right. And I'm not gonna stop taking dominion until God puts me <laughs> in the chariot and takes me away. And that's the way we're made. And, and when we tell people that the best thing to do in life is to be comfortable and have a golf course and all the things that retirement says, it, it, um, it's a delusion, frankly. God's word says that we're supposed to run the race to win to the end. What's the end? The day we die. We don't ever stop running. We're supposed to be soldiers in God's army fighting. Till when? Till we die. Mm-hmm. And then we'll get a reward. Paul talks about the importance of winning that crown. And he says, I'm not sure. I haven't won it yet. Wait a minute. Paul, you're not sure? No, because that crown came from from enduring to the end. And then he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy as he's, as he's in prison, waiting to be beheaded. And by the way, he says, everyone's left me. I'm all alone. These are, he's in Rome. He wrote the book to the Romans years earlier. Nobody came to see him. He's telling Timothy, would you bring me a coat because I'm cold? Because you're the only one I got left. Yeah. But he says to Timothy, now I know I've won the crown because now I've run all the way through the end. And another one of Satan's lies is, hey, you're 65. I mean, you you don't have anything left to offer. So Mm -hmm. just... Get, Just fade the, away. Be the first guy at the Golden, yeah. Cal, Golden Corral. I got nothing against Golden Corral. <laughs> but but hey, when man, the most exciting thing is that you get to get your mail or plan for dinner, there's something wrong. We should be repurposing the wisdom and the energy and, and that whole life of, of going through turmoil you know, and overcoming into a different vehicle. Guys who retire at 65 should be running for office. They should be getting on those school boards. They should be doing all those things. Lawyers who, quote unquote, retire should be running for DA. And they don't. And uh, and the best of the indicted judges are running problems keepers. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, man. Thanks for joining us. And uh, 
man, I hope people really get something out of this, um, your story or persecution, getting involved and informing themselves. And let's go through that list one more time as we close out of what people can do. Vote. Number one, vote. You educate yourself. You prepare yourself for that, that, that activity of voting. Volunteer. Get involved. And, and recruit others, not just volunteer you. You get your band of brothers and sisters to go ahead and get involved. And then you, you run for office if you can do that. If God's calling you to run for office, do it. Or you find somebody who's qualified and you help them. You recruit them. You stand with them to the end. 60 million people. Let's have 60 million people running for office in this country. We don't need to wait for the Supreme Court to outlaw abortion. Absolutely. We can make it so unthinkable in this society that we could save the lives of one and a half million babies a year in this country alone if we just got involved. Thanks, brother. You bet. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for listening to On the Edge Podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting, and I want to tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison. Thank you.